welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast with Kyle Krieger and Wilkie Law, where we're sharing inspiring stories of educators just like yourself, helping you to develop your craft and sharpen your tools to become the teacher your students deserve. This is the Value Adds Value podcast. Let's jump into this next episode. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Value Adds Value podcast. My name is Kyle Creek, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Will Kivila III. Will, what's going on? Man, what's going on? I'm excited, man. It's, you know, today is technically my last day of summer break, our spring break. I, I, I'm confused <laughs> on which one it is. Um, the the never-ending spring break. The never-ending spring break. So, you know, technically, we'll report back tomorrow uh, virtually for uh, eight hours of um, virtual campus day. Don't know what that looks like yet. I'll find out right. soon. Um, but, you know, it's officially the end of, of, of our break, whichever one it is. So yeah. I'm excited. You know, I'm just ready to get back. You know, we would, I was talking with some of our new teachers yesterday. And one of the things that I said was, I'm such an extrovert that I need and I crave right. that human experience. And it's so good to get back to it, even though it's virtually, but it's good to get back to yeah where you can interact and engage with other adults. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that's been one thing that's been fun about doing the podcast this summer is we've Absolutely. had a couple conversations every week with people and we are, we're really excited to uh, bring on our guests today. Uh, we connected with them through Instagram and through some conferences, but we have Jen and Mira from Teaching is Intellectual and we are excited to have a conversation with them uh, about higher ed and inclusion and all that stuff. So ladies, thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Thanks for having us. Yep. Yeah, so we were talking just a little bit prior to hitting record, and you're both uh, at the university level, and it's it's it, it's so funny how like our podcast has worked together with the people because we've been talking about you know how we build teacher preparedness programs, and then we were just talking a little bit with you about what in the era of COVID-19 teacher preparedness programs are going to look like. So if you don't mind, could you both just start a little bit um, with your background and what got you into the education profession? Sure. Um, all right, I'll go first. This is Mira. Um, so I was one of those people that said I would never, ever, ever be a teacher because both my parents were educators. Um, Prove me wrong. But um, I did my undergrad, did a five-year program with my master's in um, a, it was a dual program, so um, special education and general education. And then um, I went out and I taught, um, taught in an inclusive preschool classroom for a few years. And then I taught kindergarten for a few years. And I actually did um, one year of a first and second grade combination. Um, and then I went back for my doctorate in special education and um, or curriculum instruction in special education, rather. Um, and I actually taught a little bit during that time as well, um, and then finished that up, and that landed my job where I am now. So I'm currently at James Madison University, which is in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I um, teach classes there, and I advise students and coordinate our inclusive early childhood education program. Oh, wow. Awesome. 
which is a dual license program where students end with an early childhood and early childhood special ed. So essentially the birth to three for birth to third grade for inclusive um, wow. teaching. So, wow. And that's the same, same thing that I, I went through a very similar program, different university. I was at University of Virginia for my program, but I have the, the same dual licensure. So very close to my heart in terms of mm. preparation. And, yeah. and it's super unique. Um, it's a very cool program. And we have to shout out to all of our ICE grads who we love and adore and will be listening, I'm sure. So um, yeah, we hope. <laughs> we'll send it out to them. I'm Jen Newton. I am um, also never going to be a teacher. And I started off, um, I'm from kind of every small town in Kansas. So I went to um, the University of Kansas for my undergrad, which is a pretty big culture shock to go to a big flagship university. Right. And I did my undergrad in speech language hearing. And through the process of that, I was like, oh, I don't like this pull out isolated service kind of model. It's not for me. So I did a little bit of browsing around programs and um, fell in love with a professor in early childhood special ed. And I, I went ahead and did that as a master's right away. Um, I moved to North Carolina and I taught, I was first in early intervention, which is part C of the special education law, the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. It um, provides services and supports to children with disabilities birth to, two, birth to three years old. It's a home-based service, so I was working in families' homes, helping them support their child's development, and um, doing a lot of work with family support, family um, coaching, models like that. Then I went into an uh, inclusive preschool classroom through this school district and taught in that program for a number of years. And then... Um, Life changed, so I had a career switch to a parent coaching model through a grant supporting families in their children's literacy development. So the kids who were in those pre-K programs, I was doing coaching of their families for helping them create literacy-rich environments at home, and then uh, moved back to Kansas to um, enter a doctoral program. I did my PhD at the University of Kansas in special ed teacher ed, so I was pretty focused on the pedagogy of preparing teachers and um, sort of the history of teacher education and preparation and then sort of where are we going from here. I took my first position out of my PhD at James Madison University, which is where I met Mira and um, started working in that inclusive early childhood program and then recruited her and then left like a terrible human does. <laughs> um, and I went to St. Louis University and I worked in St. Louis for three years. And then two years ago, I moved here and I live in Athens, Ohio, and I work at Ohio University. I am special education faculty here. I'm the undergrad program coordinator for our mild to moderate and moderate to intensive special ed licensure programs at the undergrad level. And then I also have graduate students in a blended online master's program. So. That was wow. a lot. Sorry. Wow. Pretty busy. Y'all are busy. Yeah. Man. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm really interested because when I first started teaching and I, I remember not even before I started teaching, my aunt, she taught special education for years. And I remember when I was contemplating education, I asked her uh, about where should I go? I've always worked in, when I was 
in college, I worked for a vocational training program for individuals with disabilities. Uh, and I went into their homes and I kind of helped them with getting their personal life, you know, paying bills, you know, living at, living on your own. And then we transitioned them to a work day, Monday through Friday, where they would do jobs and actually get paid for doing little jobs. And I fell in love with that. So when I made the transition to go into teaching, my aunt told me, she goes, don't get stuck in special education because once you're there, you're, go you're not going to leave. They're going to make sure that you stay there. And so when I got into it, I went in as an inclusion teacher. And it was like my whole goal was to become a, a, a classroom teacher automatically because I did not want to get stereotyped. But I see that both of you kind of knew that that track and took that track and actually took it up to the next level. Um, was it always a desire to work with the population that you, with the, you know, with that population? Or is it something that you just kind of, through your experience, just kind of evolved into? Kids with disabilities or college yes, students? With kids with disabilities. Do you want to go first, Mayor? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I guess I never really saw it like that. Um, so I started out in this, this program um, that was very similar to the inclusive program. So it was the dual endorsement. Um, and we had, we just had a variety of experiences um, at the practicum level, but also in terms of coursework. Um, and I never, I never really saw it as an either or. Um, and I think this is something that we really, we talk a lot about with our students, right? In terms of, it's not when you are truly thinking about inclusive practices, um, and inclusion, right? It's not the kind of thing where these are my students and those are your students, right? Um, so yeah, I just, I don't think I ever really saw it as, oh, I need to help this particular population. I think I saw it more as I am going to be an educator and no matter what kind of educator I'm going to be, I know that I'm going to have students in my classroom that have different needs and different abilities. Um, and that's something we really stress um, in inclusion, right? And inclusive um, practices. So I don't know. What about you, Jen? What do you think? I would say that we, both of us, are deeply equity-minded and there is deep inequity in our education system. And so um, I do have I think a certain propensity in the early, in my early prep and early career to, uh, to try to position myself in a way that gave kids access to typical spaces and places. Um, that my, um, in my own life, I had an uncle who was deaf and he lived from the time he was six till he was 21 all across the state at um, at school for the deaf and he loved it there and it was the right thing for him but he was very far away from his family and that isolation sort of set with me when I was little and I never understood really the need to separate people and one of the reasons that I never saw myself as an educator is that those the inequity that's kind of baked into our system is super problematic for me the idea that we could 
start tackling some of the ableism in our system and really sort of promote the inclusion of kids with disabilities and make it more equitable was always really appealing to me. Um, I would say that both of us and the reason that we do what we do and we stick really close together in our work is that we're not, um, we're disruptive in that way. So, and I think that there is a, is a need for disruption in teacher ed and in education broadly. So I, I really think that we can change the way that we think about special ed and the way that your aunt thinks about it. She's right. Um, but that's because it's this parallel system. And that's the thing that sort of drove us. Actually, that's kind of where teaching is intellectual came from. It's teaching kids with disabilities is intellectual work. There is no such thing as a typical kid, right? Everybody has unique needs, but we as a society kind of decide where we draw the line between you're quirky and you're disabled. So that kind of thing is what we kind of like to get into with our students and really challenging them to think about the way they perceive students. Well, and I, I can say it. for, yeah, I mean, for myself, I went to uni, uh, to a, a college in Minnesota that would have been a carbon copy in Minnesota of either one of the universities that you're at, very small, very te teacher oriented. But I never, I never took, I never took classes with the, the teachers that were going into special education. Yeah. I never got experience working with students in the special education population. And then I went from Minnesota to my first job being in Houston, which was like a huge culture shock. And then going into a system, into a district that's now, what are they servicing? Will 70, 77,000 students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had all those things, but the thing that really struck me um, with what you said, so when, when you talk about inequity and in teacher prep, what are some examples of, of where you, you see that happening most? Because we've, like I said, we've been talking a lot about how we can better prepare teachers. So from your perspective in, in that area, where, where do you see the inequities the most? Go ahead, Jen. I'll start. Um, so it's, it's, there's an equity from sort of intro on, right? One of the things that we are, um, we were looking at the question about what's working well in teacher ed and we were sort of scratching our heads. And um, the one thing that we came up with is that it is a degree seeking program. It is important that teachers are intellectually prepared for the work of teaching. Um, and I was listening to you, your podcast about teacher prep. And I think that I see it differently, potentially. Um, I think that we should prepare teachers to think about education, to think about child development, to think about how do we know when someone knows something? And how do we know what they're ready for next? How do we ask really um, intellectual questions about teaching and learning and how do those things kind of fit together so that students are or sort of organically moving through curriculum versus this kind of bifurcated idea of like it's social studies time like how do you separate social studies from ELA 
right? Or how do you, they're not different. They're, they're not different. So what if we sort of pulled that apart and thought more about teaching and learning and what kids need to know and how we can get them to that place and to provoke curiosity and to engage learners in, in ways that, is, that are more authentic. Our students come to us already through an inequitable system, right? So by the time you get to higher ed, you've already had to achieve so many hurdles and you've had to have a um, the opportunity to pay for all of those fees that you have to pay for to apply to college. You have to have taken certain tests and received certain scores. We have deep inequity in um, the pipeline for black and brown teachers who are in prep because they're, our school system is broken, our federal um, educational funding system is inequitable, and so the students come through not either being able to take the tests so many times or being inadequately prepared to take the test. Mira and I can tell you many, many times when we break down those barriers, those students do awesome in our prep programs. There are these false barriers in place that we need to take down. Mm. So. And we have to push them down. Like we really fight hard to say, no, I'm letting, I'm keeping this student in this program. I don't care if they fail that praxis the first time. I don't care if your deadline was September 1st, right? Like they need to be in this program. I know they're going to make a good teacher, um, but it doesn't make us always well liked. <laughs> I, I, I guess a follow up there. Cause I, I think that's super interesting what you ended with. So in your opinion, as being educators, being in that space, what what makes a good teacher? Like in in our modern world right now, because obviously it's the fifth of August, and American education is at the forefront of every conversation that people are having. So beyond that, not just saying like in this time, this 2020, 21 school year, but but in your opinion, what what makes a good teacher from the perspective you have? Of preparing, are are there certain qualities that you look at in a teacher? Like you just spot someone, you're like, "Yep, they'll they'll be good," or "Nope, that person's not right for it." So I'm pretty well known for saying I can make a teacher out of almost anyone. I, Mira, do you think I've given up on one person or two people? Two people? I don't know. I don't know that you've given up on anybody. I anybody. I, but here's what I will say, Kyle, that's more concrete. I think with effective in, and intentional mentoring, we can build teachers. Not in and of themselves, but we if we commit to doing the work. But back to your point about what makes a good teacher, I would say someone who's committed to anti-racism, anti-ableism, equitable, and intentional teaching and learning that that would be it for me. If you think that there are kids who cannot learn, if you think there are kids that you cannot teach, we're gonna have to change that mindset in order to make you an effective teacher. But if you have those things, the rest of it, I can we can work with. It's interesting because I remember Kyle and I started um, preparing a presentation once called that said simply, you can't teach those kids. You know, that mindset of teachers who come in and say, well, those kids, those kids, you know, those kids come from this environment. Those kids come with this disability. And my thing is, the moment a kid touches our campus, that's mine. You know, I, I teach sixth grade math and 
from the moment our school opened, I opened this, we opened the school. I was the first teachers, you know, one of the first group of teachers at our school. I took ownership of our every kid on our campus, mm -hmm. sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, uh, special, gifted. It didn't matter. Athlete, band, music, it didn't matter where you were, you were our kids. And I think that mindset that that teachers have of those kids, you just set and you just set in isolation, like you said, those false barriers. Yep. Because you and I, you know, one of the things my wife and I are building are getting ready to buy buying land to build a house. And we can't develop the land until we own it. And so we can't develop the child until we own them. We have to take that ownership of those are my kids and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make sure that they are successful and they're prosperous. And I think, I love what you said about the effective and intentional mm -hmm. mentoring. Mm -hmm. um, we presented at the University of New Mexico for two years uh, about at their mentoring institute about that exact same thing. Because I think that is something that is so, a lot of districts take a laissez-faire uh, approach to mentoring and just allow teachers to come in, oh, just check in with them, you know. No, don't check in with them, sit down, talk with them, get them to write, get them to reflect on what they're doing, go video their classrooms, have them watch, you know, there's so much that you should be doing to make an effective and intentional mentoring program because we know a lot of the prep programs are not where they should be. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. You know, which goes back to a conversation Kyle and I have been having up on the podcast about standards. You know, we have to kind of get to the idea that if we want quality teachers, there has to be a mold. <laughs> there has to be a mold. Now, can you can you make it whatever you want to? Yeah, you know, I rap. So my classroom, I'm, you're going to get some music playing. You're going to get me rapping. But at the core of who I am as a teacher, that shouldn't change from teacher to teacher. Building, sustaining relationships shouldn't change. Caring for kids, that shouldn't. There are some standards that we should be able to agree on that we should be able to prep teachers for to get them ready for what they're going to uh, face in the classroom. So, yeah, I'm excited. Prep is, prep is very similar, though. I agree with everything you just said. And I would say that prep is very similar to K-12 in the sense that it's measured by standardized assessment. Um, we are data-driven as well. So I think one of the things that um, maybe is new information is that Teacher preparation programs, for the most part, have an accreditation process, and so we um, are members of a large national organization that has a certain expectation for data collection. So Mira and I build programs that have courses that we then build standardized, well not standardized, but we build um, consistent assessment into those courses that we then have to show that data to our reviewers with a big fat narrative. It's a massive um, undertaking that shows that our students have had these experiences to lead them to these seven standardized outcomes. And it's so it, as a result, does what it does in, in, in um, K-12, right? It centers the coursework around that assessment and kind of forces us into this narrow way of measuring learning for the purposes of that course, which we have, we have these assessments in at least seven courses. 
um, and they're consistent. So in higher education, one of the things that is beautiful about higher ed is that we have something called academic freedom, which is that I can teach the way I want and I can pedagogically have some protection um, in, my, in my strategies. But in this case, you can't change that assessment. So if I hire an adjunct to teach a specific class, I then have to say this, this assessment cannot be changed. The students pay for a data collection system that has to, this data gets uploaded into. We have a data manager person who pulls all that data down and messes with it and then sends it back to us to write a narrative. It's, an, it's a whole iterative system of accountability that provides us with some um, barriers, I think, to really thinking about authentic assessment, students will come through our assessment class and then be like, if that's the right way to assess, why are you assessing us in this problematic way? Or why are we using the mm. practice or the state test or whatever? Mm -hmm. And then again, you know, it's very similar. The state's still making money like it, like they are for you off of um, all this stuff, all the tests that the students have to take and they have to be aligned to our courses. So as much as we want to think we have academic freedom and pedagogical freedom, we have, we're very constrained. And that I think has the same kind of consequences in terms of thinking about limited um, approaches to developing our curriculum. So we'll have lots of colleagues, for instance, who really think about that assessment as the outcome. Mm -hmm. And for me and for Mira, that assessment is relatively irrelevant to, like it's the thing we have to do but it's not the bulk of our class. It's not, you know, that's not how we, we don't build our teaching around it. So I think that there's a misconception sometimes that in teacher ed, um, we should be doing things differently. There's also layers, like there's also, so you have the university expectations and standards that you have to meet, right? For graduation degree conferral. Then you have the state board of higher ed, Every state has one, and our programs have to get approved through there. And then, obviously, our national accreditation and state departments of ed. And so we can't just make, I mean, Mira just changed her program from a five-year master's program for licensure to a four-year program um, as the, because the state required it. And it was, what, two years worth of process? It was all a blur. My maternity leave disappeared because of it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, no, I think, but Jen, that makes me think of something we were talking about earlier also in terms of like, so you do have all of these different pieces, right, that you're working against. And I think like, it's also interesting because there's not a lot of consistency state to state, state necessarily in terms of even licensure areas. So like, in Virginia, right? So the students that go through my program, they get their birth through age five special education license, and then they get a preschool through third grade general education licensure endorsement. But like you might go over to Ohio and that's not even something that you can get licensure wise, right? Because there's just this lack of consistency, right? So we were talking earlier about, you know, if there's something that we have to embed throughout, right? Like what would it be? We were talking about that social justice piece, right? And how it's like, it's not just this thing that you can just 
check the box because it's somewhere on your state standard or somewhere, you know, but like, how can we start to really intentionally embed that throughout all of our courses as we're designing these programs, which might look different based on inconsistencies from state to state, right? But like, and I think it's getting at a little bit what you were saying a few minutes ago in terms of like this mold, right? Or like, there's gotta be some key pieces that we want to be seeing and how, how do we really get at that when we are preparing teachers? Um, we definitely don't have that. We don't have consensus um, as, a, as a field. I think that, you know, my, I'm much more of a 30,000 feet view. Um, so Wilkie, I was listening to you talk about standards and how teachers have to sort of understand the culture and then they can learn the standards when they move from region to region. Um, that tends to be my approach as well. I don't think we should be teaching specifics. Like when I teach assessment, I don't teach my students how to give the brigands. I teach them how to interpret assessment, um, results. I teach them how to think about and now where do you take this information and how do you use it? So data-driven decision-making. Um, but actually giving the assessment is training that your district will provide because they're going to decide what assessments you give. So if I spend a whole 10 weeks on one assessment and you never see it again, which is what happened to me when I was an early career teacher, then I've wasted your time and I haven't given you the skills that you need. And we, so we really focus more on the how do you think about the pieces of teaching and then embedding. I mean, I think Mira and I both are pretty committed to preparing disruptive teachers. So we need more of those. Yeah, I mean that we were on um, a little Zoom party yesterday with about ten or eleven of our former grads who are all. I guess they're still early career teachers. Um, so they're in their fourth or fifth year going into classrooms. And we have really consistent contact with students that we have had in the past, providing them support to be disruptive. Mm -hmm. And that is a missing piece. Oftentimes our students graduate and they're armed with some of the better practices, like I don't want to say best practices because I think we're always evolving, but they come out with a, some, um, you know, some ideals. Mm -hmm. And then they get into schools and they can't, they don't know how to implement them because they're seeing, and like you said, with the mentoring, they're just not supported in being disruptive. And so we do continue to provide a lot of that support for helping them navigate. And that partnership has to extend beyond our prep program, right? We can't just have them for, we have our, we're fortunate, we have our students for more than one class, but you know, a year or two years isn't enough. They need sort of career support, particularly at least through those induction years. What's going on fam? Thank you for checking out this episode of Value Adds Value with uh, Jen Newton and Miracle Williams. Um, this was such an incredible conversation. We can't wait for you to hear the second part of it uh, later on this week. Uh, today is Sunday when this goes out, but this is um, the other half is going to go out on Wednesday. So we hope you check it out. Um, it was just really, really interesting for us. And it's just kind of um, 
the universe has a funny way of bringing you people that, you know, we were just talking about teacher prep programs and we got connected with them. And, and it was just a really interesting conversation at a really interesting time. Um, so I hope you'll check it out. Um, if you want to learn more about what they're doing, uh, find them uh, at Teaching is Intellectual on Instagram. And you, that is also their website, Teaching is Intellectual. And um, reach out and ask them anything you want because they're building a really cool community. So thanks for checking out this episode of Value It's Value. Uh, the next half of this conversation will go out later this week. So check out for that. As always, you can find us uh, at it's Kyle Krieger on Instagram and Twitter at value adds value on, on Instagram is specifically for the work we do through lighthouse educator development and the podcast, as well as you can also find will as at its.will.law.iii on Instagram and at it's underscore will underscore law underscore iii on Twitter. So, um, and as always, if you share this, like it, subscribe to it, it would mean the world to us to be able to reach more educators um, with the work that we do. And being that it's the start of August and people are learning what their their school years are going to look like, if you need help, if you need support, if you need anything, reach out. We want to be there. We want to help teachers. We want to do the things um, that are helping teachers be successful. And we just want to support our community and the people that are in this profession with us uh, to make this year go as well as it possibly can be and really to make this a year where we show what education should be and what education could be. So much love to y'all. Have a great week and we'll see you again here soon on Value Adds Value.